Writing well is the pursuit of a lifetime. You may be at mile marker one of this wonderful life journey and thinking for the first time about embracing the life of a writer. Or maybe you're further along and ready to publish some of your ideas. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are fellow travelers on this extended road trip to improve our writing and publish our ideas. We hope this podcast helps you make progress on your writing journey. Now, let's buckle up and write. In the realm of nonfiction writing, facts and information reign supreme. They are critical components to educating and persuading your audience. But nonfiction writing can sometimes feel dry and disconnected when it lacks a narrative element. Storytelling is an elemental way to emotionally engage and connect with your reader. But nonfiction writers, well, they often feel insecure when it comes to creative storytelling. In today's episode, we have with us an expert storyteller, Jordan Rosenfeld. Jordan is a writing teacher and coach who has spent more than 20 years working with writers to strengthen, grow, and refine their skills in fiction and memoir writing specifically. Jordan has authored three novels and published six books on the craft of writing, including How to Write a Page Turner, A Writer's Guide to Persistence, Make a Scene, Writing the Intimate Character, Writing Deep Scenes, and Write Free, Attracting the Creative Life. Today, Jordan is going to explore with us how to write stories into your nonfiction to create a lasting impression and connection with your audience. Thank you so much, Jordan, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to be here. Before you give us an interview of your background, what writing project are you working on now or what's exciting you about your professional life? I do have a a new novel coming out, hopefully next year called Fallout, and I'm very excited about putting that out into the world. It's really a book that kind of deals with some of my passions, like concern about the environment and what it's like to be a woman and a mother in the world. So I am very excited about that. But I also have, I had did start a project that I've kind of put aside, but I'm coming back to, which is kind of about a cult-like situation. So I'm, I have a little fascination with cults. So (laughs) that's... That's what I'm excited about. So tell us a little bit about your writing journey. You have such a rich background. I'm so impressed with where you've come from, what you've achieved. Tell us about how you got into the position that you're in right now. Well, I I laugh because I call my journey to any kind of quote unquote success, my, my stumble and fumble my way to success. Because all I knew from a young age is that I wanted to be a writer. And so all I ever did was pursue opportunities that would allow me to be a writer or support my writing. So I've done things like I had a volunteer literary radio show, you know, like it didn't pay me any money, but I got to interview famous writers, right? Things like that. So I would say yes to a lot of opportunities that were like free labor up front. And then in, in one way or another fed my writing career. But I just always pursued my love of writing. And I feel like I just kind of got lucky by being very dogged in that pursuit. So eventually I became, I support myself as a writer. I was freelance for a long time and now I actually work full-time as a writer as a job. Not the creative writing, but I actually think it's better not to creative write all the time because you want to save that part of your brain for, if you do it all the time, then it sort of loses something, I think. But I, you know, I did go to college. I went, I did get a master's degree in creative writing and literature. But that was really, I I didn't do it like I'm going to 
do something with this, this degree. I just wanted to infuse my life with more of that kind of literary citizenship. And I highly recommend doing a program like that, like a master's in writing, if, if you really love to write and want to be around writerly people. What were the peer critiques like? I would imagine you had a lot of those. Oh, yeah. And how, what did you take away from those peer critiques? You, you took away that you just listened to your professor more than anything else. No. Sometimes the thing about peer critiques is that I, I often had this feeling like we all felt like we had to sound important. And therefore, that we, we translated that to mean like, cut you down. There's, a, there's actually kind of a, a reputation a lot of MFA programs have for this kind of cutting style. It, it wasn't that bad, but I did find you'd get a lot of personal reactions and the professor would have to be like, okay, is that your, your personal feelings are getting in the way, but what's actually going to help the story be, become better? I would add to that that at that age, you also don't recognize great turns of phrases. You don't recognize a story that has a nice twist to it because you don't have experience writing the stories. You might read it, yeah, and critique that. So when you're in that critique mode of a of a part of a of a fellow writer, it's just yeah. really hard to be positive because you are looking, as you said, just to to say yeah. something, but also you just don't have the experience of recognizing greatness in another writer. No, and I think there's a little competition factor, to be honest, a very unconscious one in younger writers. There's a kind of climbing over each other quality that, that happens, unfortunately. <laughs> Before we get into the meat of this interview, can you tell me, how do you get feedback on your current writing, like the novel that you're writing? What, yeah. what, is, your, what is your practice for getting feedback? I am really fortunate to have a lot of writing friends that I've cultivated over the years through a variety of means, a couple of them through graduate school, just uh, fellow writers I've met at conferences, and we'll do trades, basically. So when I have something ready, a certain set of my friends will read it. And they're fellow writers, so they're reading with those critical things in mind, but they're not going to cut my heart out. They'll be kind, but, but competent in their feedback. And then I'm lucky that with my publisher, they also have an editorial process. So on top of like when I get it to where I think it's ready, then they will also, my editor will go through and he'll offer, well, in this current situation, he'll offer me feedback as well, which is great. And, and you know, you get to an age where you actually really crave or a stage of your writing, I should say, it could be any age where you crave that feedback because you can't proceed without it. And I also do writing coaching. And it, one of the most common things I hear with my, my coaching clients is like, wow, it's just, I just needed to brainstorm this with someone else. I just needed someone else's feedback because we get caught in this loop where we can't really, we can't see beyond our own sight. One final question that I just think is interesting. What is your favorite part of the writing process or the editing process? Do you have a favorite part? I am kind of a sucker for the first drafting, the exhilaration of the first draft when the idea is coming to me. But I do love the feeling of polishing. So like when I've put in a lot of work and it's kind of, it's all gelling and I'm taking that feedback I've gotten from other people. The, the, the middle part where it's like, oh, it's a mess. I don't know what to do. I, I don't think anybody loves that part. Yeah. But I do love it when I've like gotten the feedback and I know what I need to do and then I'm ready to put it together. That I love. So if you can cultivate loving that, then you'll be more likely to get feedback in the long run. So you've written both fiction and nonfiction. It sounds like you do that for a profession on the day-to-day. -day. You write nonfiction. Is that correct? 
Yeah. So can you explain to our audience how fiction and creative nonfiction or memoir techniques can improve nonfiction writing? What have you taken away from Absolutely. your fiction writing that you apply to your nonfiction? It's a good it's a good question. I think the the most important part, it's kind of like if you ever go to a lecture or something, you know, and you know when you've had a boring lecture and you're just like falling asleep. It's kind of the same thing in writing. Like you want to feel engaged by the by the narrator. You want to feel awake, alive, and excited. And I find that the the biggest function in nonfiction writing, and and I'll talk more about this as as you ask me questions, but is to bring in some element of scenes. And what that means is you you might tell a story of something that happened that illustrates a point you're trying to make. Even if you're writing a business book, right? You can probably have a, a moment where you're like, I was in the boardroom, the big boss came in, he was chewing us out, right? You know, you're, you're putting us in a moment. This is what a scene is. A scene is basically a moment in time that involves action, often dialogue, a little bit of setting detail, and kind of characters moving through space and time toward a goal. That's, that's a fiction technique. All fiction is largely written in scenes. And if you go to the movies, right, you're watching live scenes, not live, but like in front of you, these are people acting out goals moving through space and time. So that same technique when applied to nonfiction can wake it up. So you can, maybe you're talking about something kind of dryly, passively bullet points, and then you tell us a story in scene, or you illustrate something in scene. All you're doing is you're, you're sort of rendering, you're reminding the, the reader or the listener that there are real people involved in, in what you're talking about. And you're sort of activating all of those, that neurology where we put ourselves in this, in a moment, like, oh yeah, I'm, I know what it's like to be in, I'm just randomly pulling up business stuff. Like I know what it's like to be in a, a business meeting where your boss is chewing you out and that feels terrible. And, and I can relate to this character, this narrator t- recounting a moment in his life when that happened and here's what he did and here's how he felt. So scenes engage and it honestly doesn't matter. You can always tell a story with a scene in any kind of book. I mean, I'd be hard pressed to find one. You could write about taxes in scenes. In fact, that would be way more compelling. In working with authors, say, who are using research. So, for example, you're working with someone who's more academic. They've done some research. This is not a dissertation, but they're trying to stitch in this research. When they think, when you say to, let's say, an author like this, hey, write a write a scene, like open up this chapter with a scene from one of the some content from your interviews, they struggle with, okay, this really didn't happen, or I wasn't sure the dialogue was exactly what they said. So how do you help writers kind of get over that, that in writing the story? They're they're hung up on the facts like this. So there's two approaches. You can, you can do what I call imagined scene. So you, you can essentially either imagine what you think the people might have said. You can even sort of alert the reader while I don't remember the specific dialogue, it probably went something like this. You can make it up. Here's a case, a case example of what this might have looked like. You can do things like that rather than having to be like, this is the exact or the kinds of things my father always said to me were, it doesn't have to be literal. It doesn't have to be exact. And the truth is that we know enough to know that memory is changeable and, and impermanent. So we're all making it up (laughs) to the best of our recollection, right? The other thing you can do is you can use... So I I taught a workshop to academics in Norway one year. It's a long story. And they were the most difficult bunch of people I have ever 
tried to teach in my life because they are very literal. So all this idea of like anything beyond just you write a dissertation, you write a thesis statement, you write, you know, was very difficult. But what they did seem to resonate with was the idea of bringing in a little bit more metaphor and imagery. So like compare this dense, thick topic you're trying to write about to something else like a simile. Can you, can you say gasoline manufacturing is like blah, blah, blah. So metaphors and similes can be a nice way to wake up nonfiction where you don't have the ability to write a scene. Imagery is when you, anytime you're describing something in a visual way, but you can kind of make it sound a little more interesting than just like he walked into the room. The room was 10 stories high with glistening ceilings. I don't know, you know, just a little pop (laughs) can go a long way toward making something not just flat, dry and boring. I wrote a book called Death by Suburb. This was really first person narrative. And so there was yeah. a section which my wife lost a really good friend because I I didn't hide it. But I took a lot of liberty, but it made for such a really good story. It was yeah. true. It was true to the emotion, but maybe yeah. not quite true to the actual dialogue. Is that legitimate? I think you just have to alert the reader. I would say today, I think things are a little more stringent about like making sure you're telling the truth and all that. I would say, make sure you tell the reader. All you have to do is a line. I don't know if the dialogue was something like this. Here's something they would have said. The idea is that you just kind of let the reader know what's, what's following isn't exactly as it happened, but it is in the spirit of or capturing the truth of the thing that we are conveying. So that's all I would say now. But also just... The reader trusts that your memories are your memories to the best of your ability or your experiences. And if you think about journalism, like I I laugh at how we journalism for like 80 years was done with a notepad, right? And we didn't have digital recorders. How much of that is accurate? How could you possibly be capturing accurate quotes? You could not. So now, yeah, we've got everything is recorded and there's no question. But no, there's a lot of gray area, I think. Do you have a favorite nonfiction writer who is more literary and also you think tells stories really well? What do you do think they do remarkable? That's a good question. And I did, I did kind of struggle to think about this only because I read so much fiction. But yeah. one writer who came to mind is a woman named Elizabeth Gilbert or Liz Gilbert. And she's written fiction and nonfiction. And one of one, two of my favorite books of hers, one is this kind of profile of this very quirky man. And I'm forgetting the name of the book now. It's like American, might be called American Man. And so it's a combination of like reporting, reporting and narrative nonfiction. Like she, she uses a lot of fictional scene writing technique and to, to bring this man to life. And it's a really, one of the most just sort of captivating books. I think you might consider it a biography almost. And then she wrote this, I don't even know what to call it, like book for creatives called Big Magic. And it's about like, you know, how to, I think, sort of access and stay connected to your creativity. And she does the same thing. It's like, there's a lot of scene writing. There's a lot of telling you memories and things that happen. I would also say at the sentence level, she keeps her sentences interesting. And that's another thing people can think about is your sentences do matter. And, and even in fiction, I teach my, my students that you can have the best story and the greatest characters, but if your sentences are tripping over each other, no one's going to read long enough to find them. So I would say she's got that combination of, yes, engaging scene, 
as you put it earlier, David, you know, turn, great turn of phrase, just, just a lot of attention paid at the sentence level. What are signs that your sentences are tripping up each other? You mentioned so that. Well, there's, here's, let me give you a book suggestion for anyone listening. One of my favorite books is called Getting the Words Right by Theodore Reese Cheney. And I also like Sin and Syntax by Constance Hale. So there's many, many things. One, one thing I would say, like the, the, the overarching thing I would say to look for is, do you feel like people have to labor through your sentences to get to your meaning? So that can be things like you, you write a lot of sentences of the same length. They all begin with the same word. He, 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 this, 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 this. They, there's a, a, a monotonous quality to them because maybe that's a length thing or a kind of a language is very rhythmic, very musical almost, right? Even if you're not trying to be, it has, so if you're reading and you kind of just feel like you're, you're in a cart bumping over some cobblestones, right? I you read things like passive voice. There's a lot. I, those two books though, if you read those two books only, you would get, you would, you would cut like 75% of your bad habits as a writer. They've really helped me. Things like filter words, which is when you, you, so let's say you say, she noticed the big black bird on the fence. You're, you're calling attention to the act of her noticing rather than the bird. So You would cut it and say, a big black bird landed on the fence. Get rid of, she noticed, right? That's one of my little pet peeves. So lots of things can trip, trip up sentence level stuff. But also I think the more you infuse with that, like imagery, metaphor, simile, listen, like read your work aloud and listen to how it sounds. If as you read it, does it sound like you are just reading like that? Or does it have a little fluidity to it? You can really find a lot of the, that stuff or readers can find it for you if you can't. How do you know when you've gone too far and you're overwriting? Because I think then there's that risk of I'm going to use metaphors and I'm going to use more descriptive words. And I know it's, it's probably practice, 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 but if there are any tips that you can give, that'd be great. I mean, most of the time overriding is is too many modifiers like adjectives, adverbs, descriptors. So if you're over if you're literally over describing, you're telling us too much about something or you're spending too much time describing something, that's a kind of a, a telltale sign that you're probably overriding. If you're if you're if you're looking for the biggest word or the fanciest word possible in every opportunity, you might be overriding. So let's step back to applying principles of fiction to nonfiction. And another strategy is to create suspense in fiction writing. And I'm wondering if you can give some strategies for creating a page turner right. for nonfiction. nonfiction. How do you end yeah. chapters to get them to go to that next chapter? Are there sure. any strategies? the key is with suspense and that word is very misused to mean like the suspense genre which is it, it's not only is to think of that as not giving the reader exactly what they want all at once so you're like keeping them in a state of uncertainty they don't have all the information something is not yet revealed you're building up to something right i mean in fiction that might look like characters are in danger or a character has is waiting on bad news right but in in a in a book maybe that's just informative. I would end like each chapter in a way that that lets the reader know I'm going to give you this tip, but it's coming in the next chapter. I've set you up to tell you about this important tip. And now here it's coming. Like I, I did a course with I did a collaborative course on scene writing with the Writing Mastery Academy, great people. And 
we co-wrote this script together. And at the end of every lesson, they would do this thing that was like, we've told you about this. Now you want to find out to apply it. You have to read, go on to the next lesson, right? It's this kind of, I've given you a heads up. Now you have to keep going to find out how to use it or whatever. So it's, it's always leaving something. So, so that may not really quite be suspense, but that's leaving something unfulfilled that the reader has to keep or the listener, whichever way you're doing it has to keep going in order to get that piece of information. If you're storytelling, it's leaving the story at, at a high point before or in the middle of an, an intense action or where something unresolved has happened or where someone is in a state of crisis. You kind of leave us at you end the scene before that thing has been revealed or resolved. And then you resolve it in, in the next, you know, the beginning of the next scene or chapter. So those are some some ways you can bring in suspense. So in my fiction, in, in page turner, the four elements of, of kind of page turning tension are withholding, uncertainty, conflict, and danger. And I'm sure you could apply some of those at least. So conflict could maybe be recounting some conflict. Withholding is key, I think, just not giving away the whole bag. Uncertainty and suspense are kind of interchangeable words for me, like leave us not knowing something. I would imagine conflict in nonfiction could also be you raising an opposing point of view that challenges Absolutely. your prevailing idea and maybe create some some unrest, right, in the reader. Yes. Like sure. who That's like maybe they have a good they have a good point. How how's this author gonna resolve that later on? Or in yeah. even in this chapter, well, and, and and really, I say that conflict is is essentially just opposing forces. So you're like nailing it on the head, and and I think also you can offer an oppositional point of view, or you can describe like a part of the journey where there was a lot of opposition and how you overcame it, or you can talk about what opposition the reader might be facing and how to overcome it, kind of a thing. So one idea then might be you open up a chapter with a, an, an anecdote or a story. You don't fully give the ending. Then you go into your next movement in the chapter and you don't really complete that until the end. So that's one technique, mm -hmm. right? To mm -hmm. basically Absolutely. complete the story at the end. Absolutely. You know, or leave the story unfinished in one chapter and complete it in the next chapter. Kind of like a two for pattern. So I want to talk about emotional resonance. And you already spoke to this a bit up front when you were talking about when you tell stories, people can see themselves in the story and it emotionally resonates. But why why does it matter in nonfiction writing to have emotional depth and resonance with your reader? I would think there's lots and lots of nonfiction types in which you are trying to connect emotionally with your reader. Self-help is, is a big one. If you're trying to if you're trying to instruct, guide, educate, you have to connect to people's emotions because like why else are they going to care to read about it? One of my favorite books is it's called Art and Fear and it's for creatives. It doesn't specify what kind of art, so I read it as a writer, but they they make what's what a lot of people are like, "Oh, you're just a you're just a painter, you're just a writer," which, you know, if you aren't those things, they don't mean anything to you. But they talk about the the emotional arc that you go through as as a creative person and how intense that can be and and so they did a good job i think of of putting reminding us of scenarios in which our emotions might be present and then giving us strategies to to help with that i do teach also in a, a whole class called emotion and imagery and 
we're all reading these books or these listening to these stories because we want something from it, right? We want to be, maybe we want to learn something. Maybe we want to change our lives. Maybe we want to connect to someone's story. Maybe we want to do well in business. All of that is emotionally under underpinned, right? All of that stuff is about who we want to be, what we want to do with our lives. I, I don't think there's an avenue of nonfiction that doesn't touch on the fact that we of something we desire or want for our lives. So the more that you can remember that you're not just downloading dry data into a care, into a person's head, but you're touching their desires, their livelihood, their desire to know their history, a legacy related topic. So emotion is very important. How you do it, if you're storytelling, if you're actually writing in scenes, it's actually very easy to evoke emotion. You can do it through character dialogue. You can do it through showing in the in the whoever's story you're telling that how they felt in their body, which is how we talk about sensory Im- imagery, which evokes like how if I'm ha- if, if my heart was racing and my throat was dry, I know that person's probably experiencing anxiety or fear, right? So there's lots of ways when you use scenes to evoke emotion. You can also just directly evoke it. You can talk about it. I know that making a career transition is a scary time in your life. You can just be blunt about it on the page. So I think emotion is a huge, a huge way that you engage people in any kind of writing. As a writer, you have to believe that information is not the problem, right? That- mm. That's really not the problem you're solving with that book. No, it's like I said, we're like, why do you pick up a nonfiction book? What's what's like my husband likes to read philosophical stuff about the nature of consciousness. Like, why are we here? How did consciousness form? Very heady stuff. But he's driven to understand that. Right. That's a powerful drive in him. I would probably I'm more inclined to read memoirs about emotional experiences that people have had and how they overcame them. Or like how-to guides on something. My favorite would be Bass, you know, Rick Bass, the literary writer. His book on dog is called Coulter. Yeah. It's his nonfiction. Now, he's a powerful fiction writer. But every time I'm reading that again, and I'm reading it really slow, and I, I can't even get through some of the pages because it's like... So emotional. It's so emotional. And boy, that is so powerful. So if nonfiction writers are looking to develop more of these these strategies that you use in fiction writing, is it just about practicing and getting feedback or are there are there things that they I mean, can do to improve? I think it's good to identify what it is you want to improve first of all. I think that anything you don't know, you're not just going to magically know by practicing it. So I do think you need to gain knowledge. And so for me, I tend you know, I I tend to look to online classes. And if it's a, if it's a writing craft related thing, a writing craft book, there are a gazillion. I love the books put out by my publisher, Writer's Digest books, because they are, it's niche, right? It's like anything you can imagine about writing, you're going to find a, a topic there that, that it's relevant and they do webinars and things like that, but not to promote another service or anything, but just to, to say there's a lot of resources online. Then I also think feedback is really necessary. So if you figure out what sh- what's missing in your writing, then you get some strategy, you learn a little bit, and then try to get seek feedback so you actually know if what you're trying to do is working. And and I, I'm a fan of like, you send a, a, a manuscript to someone or, or a piece of writing, and then at the you, you let them read it. And at the end, you leave them some questions, some leading questions so you can get feedback 
that is useful to you rather than just like, oh, I liked it or I don't know, it didn't work for me. You know, well, that's not helpful. Tell, ask them specific questions that you know will help you fe- get that feedback. And then, yes, it's practice, but you got to start with some knowledge, I think. What are some of those specific questions that you can ask? Because we do recommend that to our writers too. like ask your reviewer what specific things that you're looking for. I would say like, where do you, where do you kind of fall out of the flow of this writing? Like, where do you get bored, impatient? Where does it not make sense? What more did you want? Did you, did you want there to be more of something, less of something? It's hard for me to, to be specific unless I know exactly what kind of writing we're talking about. If it was a memoir, I would say, does this story feel like it has a complete arc? That it's telling a story that goes from point A to point Z and, and that you feel you learned something along the way. Like, does this writing add something to your knowledge, understanding or life in some way? You know, or did you just come away going, eh, that was that was a thing. You don't want people to feel like they wasted their time on your writing. So just before we close out, I want you to answer this bonus question, which we did not provide for you in advance. And it has to do with the book you also wrote called A Writer's Guide to Persistence. And of course, the writing life is just a journey, right? It's something that you're never really complete with and it takes persistence. So what is your best advice to create a sustainable writing practice? The book that I wrote called A Writer's Guide to Persistence came about after what I call my dark night of the soul as a writer. And I had had a big rejection, like my, my agent couldn't sell my novel but sort of false promise that it was going to make it. And the industry is fickle. So I didn't. And then at the same time, I was about to have my son. So there was this kind of like, my writing life is over. And there were other factors. It was right around the um, crash, the 2008 recession, 2009. And I lost a lot of writing work. So it was a very dark time in my life. And I thought, I'm not a writer anymore. So the book came out of me kind of like trying to come back to that part of myself and sort of pep talking myself. And what I discovered is for myself is that you have to connect with, there has to be a sense of purpose, curiosity, or passion that drives your writing practice. And then you have to treat everything you do for your writing as part of that practice. So if you're only a writer, when you successfully publish, you will be disappointed because that can be a long journey. If you're only a writer in your mind and your identity, when you make a million dollars, you will be disappointed because it is difficult to do that. So you have to, I always joke, like, do you think that people who have a yoga practice wake up in the morning and are like, I'm not a successful yogi. I didn't do 65 poses today. My yoga practice is a failure. No. Right. So writing, I'm like thinking about writing counts, hanging out and doing a writing session with friends counts, sending out a a piece and having it rejected counts. Every, you have to treat your your life like a writing practice, if that makes sense. And it has to come from a place of passion, curiosity, or purpose. Because if it doesn't have one of those undercurrents, then why are you doing it? I'm not saying anyone should give up, even if it's hard. But it's like, that's what's going to keep driving you. If you're like, ah, you know, writing is a difficult, this is for me, like, it's a difficult industry. I've had more rejection than success in my lifetime. Why do I keep doing it? Because there's a part of me that is just too fascinated by human behavior and loves to chew chew it over in words. And that's just what I'm going to keep doing. I'm going to keep coming back to it. So in the book, I, I suggest that people make a list of like 50 reasons why you write. And that sounds absurd, but I'm like as big or as small as you possibly can. 
because if the more you connect with the why, the more you'll be likely to find that purpose, passion, or curiosity. What a wonderful note to end on. Thank you so much, Jordan, for yeah, being with us today. Wonderful. Thank you all. I really appreciate it. This was really fun. I appreciate it. All right, Dave. Let's turn to our words of the episode. I'll go first. This was a word that I learned last night. My friend and I went actually up to Wisconsin to watch a meteor shower. I think we saw like four or five, but on the way home, we were looking at words because that's something that she and I both do. We both have a background in literature and publishing. And so this was one that neither of us know, and it is métier. It's a French word and it's M. E with the accent, T-I-E-R, and it is a noun, which means an occupation or activity that one is good at. So it reminds me of the word bailiwick, which is a more informal, colloquial way of saying the same things. So I wanted to apply it to my own life, and here's a very simple question. In college, when I was studying English, I didn't know that marketing would be my Métier, an occupation or activity that I'm good at. You know, I was studying literature. I thought I was going to be a professor, and but I started working for you, Dave, and your marketing agency, and realized, oh, there's a place for people who like words and marketing. So, anyway, an occupation or activity that one is good at. Métier. Again, one of these words that you come up with that I've never heard before. I'm sure I've read this word and blew through it and never really understood it. Same with me, which is why I'm bringing it to the table. So it's something that I will at least recognize. I don't know if I'll ever use it in a sentence, but at least I'll recognize it when I see it. All right, Dave, what's your word of the episode? I'm sure it's going to be a good one. So I, I, I'm taking, I'm reading a book by Reinhold Mesner, who was one of the first to ascend Mount Everest. And so he was, he was one, he's one of the most prolific climbers. And there's a word called belay to belay, right? It's a word, it's a climbing word. And the concept of belay means to protect a roped lead climber from falling by controlling the, the rope. And, and, you know, a short definition is it consists of a rope that runs from a climber to another person who's the belayer who can stop the climber's fall. So this is essential if you're you're not free solo type work, but if you're climbing with a team to have someone belay the lead climber. So could we use that metaphorically as using words in a more metaphoric sense? Could you think of a way in which you could use it? I, I was thinking of this before I b- before our episode today, and I was thinking, I can't think of a an application, kind of metaphorical a- application, but I was thinking Maybe as you think about a leader, the, the role of people that support a leader to, to belay, to create friction, to it's, it's in a sense a form of, of support, right? To prevent your lead or your leader, wh- whatever team you're in, whether you're on a swim team or something, it's some form of support that enables the lead climber not to, you could say, make a mistake, right? Or to fall. Yeah, I think there you have it. That's your metaphor. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that is the end of this episode. We're so glad that you joined us. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write. 